Jehoshaphat finds himself in a rather difficult place. The place in which he finds himself is that he is king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and he gets word that three enemies are marching in. Not one, not two, but three. Three enemies, verse 1 sets up, are coming in and they are going to bring about sure devastation, destruction, disaster to Judah. Judah will be pillaged. There is no doubt that these three enemies can uh, now uh, overcome the divided southern uh, uh, and northern kingdoms. Uh, Judah is, uh, will be overcome. There is no doubt. We learned then in the, at the outset of this uh, record that Joe has read, three times this phrase occurs, and if you write in your Bibles, you should underline them. The problem is stated, and verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. A theme unfolds here, that of seeking the Lord. This morning we are going to look at four ways to seek the Lord. Number one, seek the Lord transparently. It is never popular for a king to say, I am afraid. It is never popular for the guy who commands the armies to say, I'm afraid. But if you look at this record here in uh, 2 Chronicles verse 3, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. He clearly has communicated to the people around him, though he is king, though he is in charge, he's afraid. I would submit to you this morning that we live in a tinted window world. What I mean by that is we can climb in our vehicles, the windows are tinted, no one sees in, but we prefer to see out and look out and see what's going on in everybody else's life so long as they don't see what's going on in ours. We kind of protect them in this tinted window world. We protect ourselves. We don't want people to see the raw and the nasty and the ugly and the difficult. But that exists, does it not? Life is incredibly hard. Pain comes. Trouble comes our way. And what the scriptures clearly teach all throughout scripture is that Christians are never intended to live in a tinted window world. Christians are never intended to live in a world that only sees out but never sees in. We, we live so that others see what's going on through our lives. I've said recently, this is why you should plug into a small group, to a Bible fellowship group, so you can sit with other people, and you roll the windows down in those groups, and they look in, and they see, and sometimes you say very honest things that you would never thought you would say, but they need to be said. You're hurting, you're going through tremendous things. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and everybody knew it. 
But you can't stop there. You must seek the Lord confidently. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. Before the new court, he stood in front of his people and he prayed to God, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? He reminds himself and the people of who God is. Your prayers must be prayers of praying the very character of God, the very essence of who he is. We must seek the Lord confidently. He says, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Who's coming after Jehoshaphat? Three different kingdoms. And Jehoshaphat prays to the God who rules over all of those kingdoms. You rule over those kingdoms. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Now what's significant about that is that anybody could withstand Judah in their weakness, but but Jehoshaphat prays to a God whom no one can withstand. None can withstand him. Absolutely no one. He knows he's vulnerable. God isn't. He knows he's weak. God is strong. He knows that he can ultimately fail, but God will never fail. If your prayers do not get to this place, you will wallow in the circumstances of your problem and never see the God who can do something about it. We must seek God confidently. Pray who God is, but also pray what God has done. I love that. Uh, Verse 7, he begins to remind God of things God has done. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? God, this is what you've done. Did you not do this? Every one of you in your lives can look and see what God has done. Amen? You can look and see this is what God has done. I was in this situation, and God did this. Well, you say, Jerry, how can I do that? If you know Christ, if you know Christ, he has redeemed you. He has brought you to himself. He has has saved you. I mean, he has brought you into the kingdom of light, out of darkness. If that's all he ever did, is that not enough? Is that not enough? You can look and see what God has done and you see his greatness, but then you go beyond that and you see what God has done in other arenas of your life. I mean, as this morning at 8.30, we gathered to pray for a couple of folks who have cancer. I look back and see Margaret Grindstaff who sits here and look what God has done. And I see that God has healed her, is healing her and what God has done. And I say, praise the Lord, Amen. Look what God has done. When I think of the reality or of the possibility of Adam losing, losing his wife, I look around the room and see widows and widowers. And you sit here faithfully and you love the Lord and you, 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 you have not hesitated in one moment 
in that aspect of your life to trust God. And I go, look what God has done. Look what God has done. We must have a healthy uh, backward glance to the great things that God has done. He has been so good. He has been so good. He has answered so many prayers. He has come through so many times. He has done amazing and marvelous things. We do not live for that list of things. We live for the glory and the honor and the praise of him. But there are those things that he has done in our lives that are completely gracious and merciful for which we must always be thankful, but especially at times like this. We must seek him confidently, and we must pray who he is, and we must pray what he has done. I love the honesty of Jehoshaphat. All the people are standing there. The enemies are marching in, and you can hear the sounds of of the hooves of the horses in the background, and you can hear the chants of the men as they're marching in to Judah there in the south, and and. Jehoshaphat stands there with that stereo sound of enemy and admits to all of his people, to God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I must say to you, and you know this if you've walked with the Lord, and teenagers, listen to me, Uh, young folks, listen to me, you will come to this place in your life, most likely as a college student, where you will be alone in your dorm room and you will be feel assaulted by life itself. And you will pray this prayer, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. You live long enough and you'll have to pray that prayer. you will experience the unthinkable. You will have a friend who goes through uh, the unthinkable experience. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. You pray confidently. Confidence doesn't rest in your uh, own knowledge. Jehoshaphat said, "I, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. So seek the Lord transparently, seek the Lord confidently, seek the Lord attentively. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. All of them stood before the Lord. I want to say to you this morning that waiting is the norm in Scripture. Quick answers are not. All you have to do is kind of trek back through Scripture and you'll discover that waiting is normal. Abraham is told that he is going to be the father of many nations. It is many peoples. It is, it is when he is ultimately 100 years old that that is fulfilled. He lost patience in the process. Moses thinks the solution to Israel being in Egypt is for him to take out this guy who's beating this this Israelite only to go to the backside of the desert for about 40 years while God instructs him. And as God instructs him, uh, the burning bush doesn't go out and God says, go back. 
And Moses is a mere 80 years old when he sets out on that venture. Waiting is the norm. Joseph has dreams as a kid that he is going to do great things and even his brothers and his father will bow down to him. His mistake was sharing those with his brothers and his father. Not a good idea. He ends up in the pit. He ends up then in Potiphar's house in Egypt. He ends up being unfairly accused and heads to prison. He ends up interpreting dreams for the Pharaoh's, uh, uh, for, for the Pharaoh's uh, butler and, and baker. He in, interprets dreams, says, please remember me when you get back. They forget, as best we could tell. Two more years passed in the prison, passed in the prison before. He hears the word that the Pharaoh's had a dream and he becomes prime minister of Egypt. Years pass before His family, starving to death, comes to Egypt and they bow before him just as he had dreamed as a kid. Waiting is the norm. David is anointed king of Israel and at least for seven years runs for his life. Waiting is the norm. Most profound example, Jesus Christ. Born and we know nothing of his life For 30 years. We have a couple of snapshots. That's it. Um, I mean, if I've been in charge, if if I've been Jesus' marketing director, oh, wow, child prodigy. Get lots of attention, right? Send a 10-year-old into a place and do some healing, and and that'll really turn eyes and bring the entire world's attention. and, And maybe the Caesar would bring him in, and maybe we could start this massive massive tour. Let's let him build tables and hang out with Joseph and and Mary for 30 years in obscurity and then we'll bring him onto the scene as a 30-year-old man, give him three years in the public eye and send him to an untimely death. Waiting is the norm. You will have to seek the Lord attentively. If you're expecting some kind of McDonald's answer that isn't in Scripture, and I know there's some of you type A people, and this is sucker punching you. I'm one of you. I want everything, and I want it yesterday. It's so not normal. In Scripture. So what happens? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. He's in the crowd, and he begins to speak. And he says, thus says the Lord, because that's how God spoke in those days, through prophets who would utter utterances that were directly from God himself. God speaks today through his word primarily. Oh, he will speak through an encouraging word from someone else. He will speak through a song that you sing, but he speaks primarily through his word. Our staff is memorizing Psalm 8, which we just read in our prayer time this morning, our prayer service. This week, or last week actually, John Kingsley, John and Kelsey, many of you know who lost their son three weeks ago. John and I have been friends for years, and I was able to lead John to the Lord. He and I came, and we met. John will tell you with no pride at all that his first meeting with me was in my office. 
on a Wednesday night, and he walked in and he said to me, Jerry, I believe all this God stuff you're talking about, but this Jesus stuff, I don't buy. I was like, okay. And for the next hour, we talked. And for the next weeks, every week, John and I would meet. And Wendy could tell you that I would come home so mad. John and I were just sparring. We were going after it. And I was defending Christ and presenting Christ. And John and his intellectual, uh, uh, intellectualism was struggling with it. And we would just go back and forth, back and forth. Until one night, John called me, sitting on his front porch. And he said, okay, Jerry, I'm done I'm sitting here looking at the stars. I believe God is who he is, and I believe Jesus is his son, and I am all in. And John prayed in the service this morning for the Kenningers. That faith has been tough and held strong. So John works near my house, and he called me 6 a.m. a week or so ago. He said, Jerry, Jerry. I said, what? He said, are you up? Well, I am now. Um, no, I was. I get up early. He said, Jerry, you got to check this star out. So there I go. Sorry for the image in town. Sue was up, but she never looks out. So boxers alone. All right, boxers only. I'm out in the backyard checking out the star, freezing to death. So I said, I'm on the phone with John. I said, man, that's amazing. So I go back in. When I do, I get on the computer. I said, I'll text you. I get on the computer. I discover as best I can figure if I'm doing, looking at the sky correctly, I find this website where I can look at it exactly, you know, that night and see where, where things are. The star is called Antares. And Antares is the 16th brightest star in the universe. I discovered that this star, Antares, which is super bright uh, this night, it happens to be uh, right over kind of east-southeast, and I discovered that this star, uh, the diameter of it is 350 times that of the sun. That this star is 605 million miles across. 605 million miles across. Wow. Wow. That if that star was at the center of our solar system, Mars and that star would collide. It's later that morning that uh, I'm headed up the mountain to see Adam and Rachel. And I'm going through Psalm 8 in my mind. When I consider the work of your, listen to this, fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. And I think, all right, I could pick up about six inches with my hand. God with his fingers at least can do 605 million miles. <laughs> and I'm going up the road and when I think, oh, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and it dawns on me. I know this is, you know, you got this a long time ago, but it dawns on me that the psalmist didn't have the internet. Like, he's blown away by it. He doesn't know it's 605 million miles. I know it's 605 million miles because i got a little machine. I can look those things up. And I look that up and I go, wow. When I consider the moon and the stars with your fingers that you have set in place, your fingers, God, with which you have done that, who am I that you are mindful, or mindful of me? 
And who is the son of man that you remember him? God, you are so awesome. You are so great. You can do so much. How in the world can you fit my life into your existence? But he does. He does. He does. Oh, in times like this, we must go to God's word. We must seek him attentively. We must seek him with everything. We must look. I mean, how much more should we look at creation since we can go look up all the interesting facts that build our faith more? How much more should we look at it and go, God, you are awesome. God, you are great. Seek the Lord attentively. Finally, seek the Lord obediently. So Jehaziel gives him an interesting, interesting twist to everything. He says, tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Well, okay. I've got three enemies marching in. I can hear, I can hear them marching. I can hear that in the background. The hooves of the horses and the chants of the men, I can hear in the background. And I've got a prophet saying to me with that in the background, don't need to fight. You won't need to fight. Just stand still. And do you know what I'm thinking to that? you got to be kidding me. All right? You and I have the privilege of looking at this in hindsight. And we know, maybe you don't, I'll tell you how the story ends. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Wow. So what did they do? Oh, they whined and they cried and they complained and they said, oh, but, but, but Jehaziel, don't you realize what's going on here? we got three armies. We've got to at least muster some troops just in case God's plan doesn't work. No, no. What did Jehoshaphat do when Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground? And all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord. The next word blows me away worshiping seek the lord obediently whatever he says do what's the next word church do isn't that what mary told all of them at the first public miracle of jesus pretty simple words weren't they whatever he says do Seek him obediently. They worshiped. This is hard for us to do. Remember the story when Jesus is in, it is the night he is to be betrayed and he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, most likely getting ready to leave when they show up to get him. And Judas uh, has brought all kinds of people. They think there's going to be a large insurrection. And so they bring all of these people. And when they do, Peter, (laughs) I love him. 
he says what everybody else is thinking and does what everybody else wants to do. You've met those kind of people. You're in a meeting. Everybody's thinking one thing, but there's one guy just dumb enough to say it out loud. That was Peter. Or you've been in a situation, and everybody wants to do one thing, but everybody's holding back except one person. Well, that's Peter. And so what does he do? He grabs a sword. I mean, there's a, there's a host. The numbers suggest there's so many of those people. He grabs a sword, and what does he do? He cuts the ear of the, the guy off. I mean, he, he obviously is not good with a sword uh, because who would ever go for an ear? So he's, he's not good with a sword. He's, he's trying to go for the throat, I guess, uh, you know, chop the man's head off. And so he, he misses, hits the ear, and Jesus looks at him and, and, and rebukes him and grabs the guy's ear and in that moment of great trial heals this guy who came after him to arrest him. Why ever in the world would Jesus do that? Here's why. Because if Peter could have succeeded, if Peter could have succeeded in bringing about some kind of rebellion against what Judas was doing, Jesus would not have gone to the cross There are a couple of principles as we seek the Lord obediently that we must remember. Uh, These work all across Scripture, and they're tremendous. Humility comes before honor. Always. God will never honor a proud person, but he will always honor. A a humble one. Humility always works. Humility comes before honor, and the groan comes before the glory. And the cross came before the resurrection. You see, if Peter had succeeded and Jesus had not gone to the cross, the resurrection would not have happened. We would not have had this sacrifice for our sins. Jesus resolutely, and Paul tells us later, obediently went to the cross. He obediently went to the cross. It was not something that he reveled in doing. It was not something that he cherished. It was not something that he anticipated. But over and over in the Gospels, they say he set his face toward Jerusalem. He went to the cross obediently. And his obedience in going to the cross brings about the salvation for you and me. Nobody, nobody at Calvary except Jesus knew fully what was happening. Oh, the Roman soldiers thought they had scored another one, another uh, crucifixion to chalk up to their list of crucifixions. The Jewish leaders thought they had, uh, they had suppressed this insurrectionist who was coming up against their great faith. Mary thought she had lost a boy. She had lost a son. That's what she thought. John thought he had lost his best friends. The disciples thought they had lost their leader and they fled in the darkness. But Jesus knew when he cried from the cross, it is finished that he had gained the whole world for everybody who would come to him in Christ. He had given them life. Amen? 
He knew that. He had to be humbled in order for there to be glory. Uh, The groan had to come in order for there to be glory. All of the Christian faith is built on a suffering Savior who privileges us in sharing at times with him in that suffering. As a matter of fact, Paul says a jarring statement in one of his letters that we complete the suffering of Christ. I'll ask our team to come, our praise team. It's so appropriate that we finish this service by worshiping. And so as you come, the reality is we're worshiping, knowing some things. Here's what we know. All right, we've talked about rolling the windows down, so we're going to roll the windows down. No more tinted window world for believers We know that Gina McKinney sits here this morning, having learned this week that her tumor is larger in her brain. We know that. We know that. We know that Pam Rust, who has battled cancer now for two years, has just had a heart attack and is trying now to deal with those two things. We know that. We know that three weeks ago that John and Kelsey's little boy, Weston, died and that as I've talked to John every single day since then that there isn't a day as you could imagine that goes by that they don't would love to see little Weston running around we know that we know that unless God intervenes Rachel won't make it unless he intervenes we know that We know that Freddie's vision is nearly gone. And unless God intervenes, he won't continue to be able to see. And we know that Bugs has never recovered from her stroke and has had yet another one. That's what we know. You say, how can we sing? Well, for Jehoshaphat, what happened? They marched forward. He actually took the Levites. That would be the praise and worship team. I'm going to name them today, the Levites. And so he took the Levites and he put them out in front. And the armies marching in. And they began to sing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. While the army is marching in, they're singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. It's one thing to sing that song when it's quiet. It's one thing to sing that song when it's calm and everything is good. But it's a totally different thing to sing that when the army is marching in. But that's what they did. They sang. God routed them. They turned on each other. And Judah was spared. So, but Jerry, already things haven't turned out like we wanted. I know that. But I'll tell you this. On the cross, nobody thought they would except Jesus. And they did three days later. Our whole faith is built on that. If you don't know Christ, things will never turn out like you want. Oh, they may hear in this life, but ultimately in the life past this one, 
you will be separated from God because you did not trust Christ. You need to trust him today. You need to turn your life to him today and trust the Jesus who died for you. Secondly, the Christian faith is built on the hope of a Christ who died, who resurrected, and I believe this very minute, if God so choose, could come back to get us. And so we will, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, always be with the Lord. Verse 18 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we're going to sing two or three songs, and then I'll step back up, and we'll have a time of invitation. If you want to come and pray, you want to join the church, the altar's open the whole time, but we're going to worship in the face of worst possible scenarios. Let's sing.